0: Today's reading is Psalm 76. God is renowned in Judah. In Israel, his name is great. His tent is in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shields and the swords, the weapons of war. You are radiant with light, more majestic than mountains rich with game. The valiant lie plundered, they sleep their last sleep. Not one of the warriors can lift his hands. At your rebuke, God of Jacob, both horse and chariot, lie still. It is you alone who are to be feared. Who can stand before you when you are angry? From heaven you pronounce judgment, and the land feared and was quiet. When you, God, rose up to judge, to save all the afflicted of the land... Surely your wrath against mankind brings you praise, and the survivors of your wrath are restrained. Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all the neighboring lands bring gifts to the one to be feared. He breaks the spirit of rulers. He is feared by kings of the earth. This is God's word.
1: Father God, we long to be people who know the truth. We do not want to give our lives to fairy stories and myths. We want to trust in and build on truth. And so we pray that as we look at your word today, you would give us hearts that recognize truth and trust in what we hear. For our hope, our confidence and your glory. Amen. These are troubling times uh, for Christians around the world. I know not all of us would be Christians here, but for Christians around the world, these are troubling times. Jovi was just praying in our prayers for the Rwandan churches. And 700 churches closed just in Kigali, the capital. Perhaps 6,000 in the whole country over the last couple of months. Just shut down overnight. Very troubling for the Christians there. To suddenly find themselves who had been encouraged, actually, and felt very much a part of the culture there, and suddenly they're illegal. What do they do? The last few years in China has seen hundreds and hundreds of churches, thousands actually, bulldozed. The state media very happy for it to be filmed, inviting the TV crews to watch the crosses being ripped off the roofs of mega churches where thousands worshipped each Sunday and bulldozed down as Xi Jinping has decided that Christianity is not Chinese, unless it is Chinese first and Christian second. And it's pretty intimidating for Christians there. There's a 100 million of them, but it's pretty intimidating. Even in the West, uh, the last election election in the US during the, the primaries, as they were selecting the candidates, one of the candidates who almost got the nomination to run for president He was asked for his comment when a a particular politician was talking about his views and was asked, do you think Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation? A pretty standard belief amongst Christians. And he said, yes, I believe Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. And if I don't accept that, then I'm going to face his judgment. And this candidate who very nearly got the nomination for president said, that is hateful. That is an insult to over a billion people living in the world. This country, since its inception, has struggled, sometimes with great pain, to over- overcome discrimination of all forms. We must not go backwards and tolerate things such as this. Extraordinary. Someone who almost got the nomination for US President. We keep thinking, we think America is, you know, a Christianized country, unlike secular Britain. And yet mainstream politicians are happy there to say it is a backward thing to believe standard Christian beliefs. Uh, Christianity Today reported this week, restrictions on religious freedom are increasing in most parts of the world, and 83% of the world's population now live in areas where restrictions are high or very high. 83% of the world's population. Very easy to feel intimidated if you're a Christian. But of course, it would be a wicked lie to pretend Christians are the only people in the world facing oppression or injustice. Survivors of Grenfell uh, look out and feel pretty powerless when you hear the interviews. They don't have great hope that those who are responsible will be brought to justice. Children caught up in political games in the US, separated from parents and no idea what's going on. Came for a better life and find themselves facing goodness knows what. Terrified. Throughout the world... In a geopolitical sense, people face dictators. People face political injustice. And at home, we have children who are being bullied at school, and we're not quite sure how to help them. Some of us, let's be honest, are being bullied in the office by the same sort of behavior we thought people had grown out of, and then we find it's there in the workplace. Some of us are being bullied in our in our families and even in our marriages. There is oppression all over the world. And Psalm 76, which we just had read, is an ideal psalm for times like this. And it's not just me who thinks that. The editor who compiled the psalms, who put them into the five books that we now have in the Bible, thought that too. Why do I say that? Well, this is a psalm about God's mighty victory. Uh, Ancient tradition from the earliest times has told us that uh, this was linked to the destruction of Sennacherib's army outside Jerusalem, recorded in 2 Kings 19. But after the Psalms were written, the editors who put the Psalms together into the five books of Psalms put Psalm 76 here in book 3. Which, as we've seen over the last few weeks, is a book all about everything going horribly wrong. Book 3 is all about things declining, things falling apart. It's all about crying out to God and not hearing an answer. It's all about being destroyed. And yet, the editor said, I think you need the lessons of Psalm 76, the lessons of a God who can bring justice and victory in the middle of this. The editor was saying to you and me this morning, you need to hear the lessons of Psalm 76 if you're concerned about oppression in your your life or around the world. And we'll see why this is such a good encouragement for troubling times. And why this is a psalm that can bring hope to the universal human longing for justice. you got the points there on your on your sheets. Uh, just two points. God's people know God is a mighty saviour and all people will know God is a mighty judge. Now the psalm uh, splits into four bite-sized chunks. There's an obvious break really after verse 6. And then if you look at the, the foot of your page, you'll see um, that there's a selah, a it says, after verses 3 and 9. And it says, probably a musical term. cellar uh, appears. A, mu- a word of uncertain meaning. Nobody really knows what it means. It, it sort of appears after some breaks in the Psalms. And nobody has a clue what it means. You can get a PhD if you want one coming up with a new theory. Um, I'll tell you what I think it means. Uh, if you ever listen to the music of James Brown, you'll know that uh, he sings words, but every now and then there's a sort of... Um, which... <laughs> And I think it's kind of like that. It's just a sort of musical pause that nobody understands. That's my theory. Um, you'll be calling me Dr. Phil Alcock soon, PhD. Okay, let's uh more seriously. Verses 1 to 3. Tell us what God's people know. Verses 1 to 2. God is renowned in Judah. In Israel, his name is great. His tent is in Salem. His dwelling place in Zion. God is renowned in Judah. That's interesting. God is known in Judah. This little section tells us God is known by God's people in a particular way. God is known in Judah. That's the greatest of the 12 tribes. The the tribe from which the kings, like King David, were descended and ultimately Jesus would come. God is known in Israel. His name is great. That's the northern kingdom, uh, the 10 tribes that split from Judah. In Salem, that's just a short version for Jerusalem. His dwelling place is in Zion. That's the temple mountain in the, in the heart of Jerusalem. It's a very interesting little point being made here. God gets to choose how he reveals himself. That's his prerogative. And God has chosen to reveal himself through the history of one particular people, the Israelites. See, God is not just a a kind of generic idea, an empty word that I get to fill with whatever culturally appropriate and comfortable ideas resonate with me. No, God gets to reveal himself, and he has revealed himself. He's revealed himself through the history of one particular people, the Israelites, Uh, God, when he met Moses at the burning bush, declares, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, I am the God who has done these things with these people. That's how you know who I am and what I'm like. His tent is in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. That is, uh, his tent or his tabernacle, which later becomes his temple. It was permanently located on the Mount Zion in Jerusalem. That was where God said, look, symbolically, I'm going to dwell here. If you want to draw near to me, you, you kind of go to the temple in Jerusalem in the Old Testament times. So God is not known in the, in the vague intuitions or imaginations of human beings. God hasn't left us groping around in the dark saying, I kind of like to think God is a bit like this. No, he's revealed himself in history, in concrete ways and said, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. You'll know me through my track record. The history and rituals of the Jewish people in the Old Testament reveal the character and purposes of the God of the universe. Now, of course, Jesus taught the whole Old Testament points to Him. He is the one. He is the new temple, John 2. He is the one to whom all of the Old Testament points. But when he came, he then authorized his apostles to write down in concrete, clear, unchangeable words who he is and what he'd done so that you and I could know what he's like. Uh, When my dad was... um, he used to do a lot of conferences in the States uh, with his uh, previous work. And uh, his name is Alistair Alcock. And the first time he was speaking uh, at a conference in the Deep South, um, the uh, the guy who was meant to be introducing him realized, he, he, you know, in all the busyness, he'd forgotten to to check his name. So he sort of whispered to him, what, what, what's your name? So dad whispered his name back to him in my dad's plummy English voice, Alistair Alcock. And uh, we're delighted to have our speaker today, Mr. All-Star Oglethorpe. Which, having gone through school with the surname I did go through school with, I would have been much happier with Oglethorpe. I've got to be honest, I've got to be honest. But we hate it, actually, when people introduce, they get us wrong. That's not my name. Actually, no, that's not who I am. But it's much, much worse when they get our character wrong. When people think we've done things we haven't done. When people blame us for thinking, no, no, that's not me. That's I didn't do that. I'm not like that. We hate that. We hate it when it's done to us, and yet we're all tempted to do it to God. I like to think God is like the God I believe in would never do that. I can't believe God would ever say that. God has the right to reveal himself. God has the right to be who he is. And we do not have the right to choose. God has revealed himself. He's renowned in Judah. He is the God whose tent is in Salem. He is the God who worked through the history of Israel. Um, Matt, the senior minister, has been away this week with a number of other um, Anglicans at a conference in Jerusalem called GAFCON, the Global Anglican Futures Conference. Now, the reason that conference exists is because there is a great battle going on in Anglicanism at the moment. Largely, I'm ashamed to say, it's a battle between the rich Western nations And on the other side, the Gafcon Anglicans, the African, Latin American and Asian churches, together with some from the West. And it is basically at heart a battle between two views of God. On the one side is what we're sure God is like and approves of, because after all, God is pretty much like us, isn't he? And on the other side, what God actually says he's like and approves of and disapproves of in his word, the Bible. And GAFCOM was founded by, well, the vast majority, 85% of global Anglicans, to call us to remain faithful to what God has revealed in the Bible and to wholeheartedly support that view. And so we're delighted to get behind uh, the African bishops in that. God has the right to reveal himself. Just the first two verses tell us that. And then what God has revealed about himself we're told in this psalm in, in particular. He is the mighty saviour of his people, verse 3. There, that is Jerusalem, that's where he broke the flashing arrows, the shields and the swords and the weapons of war. Verses 4 to 6 then expand on this. You are radiant with light, more majestic than the mountains, rich with game. The valiant lie plundered, they sleep their last sleep. Not one of the warriors can lift his hands. At your rebuke, God of Jacob, both horse and chariot lie still. Now we are as good as certain that we know what this refers to. Judah was invaded by the Assyrian warlord Sennacherib in 701 BC and 2 Kings 19 or Isaiah 36 to 37 recount what happened. Jerusalem was surrounded by this vast army that has basically annihilated every city in the region. They're outnumbered, they're outgunned, and they're doomed to be starved to death and then destroyed like everyone else. Assyria at the time was an unstoppable war machine of unbelievable wickedness and brutality. Uh, The things they did, you would not believe. I mean, we, we talk about war crimes now. Assyria, we have nothing on Assyria. They would pile up the bodies, chop off the hands, the noses, feet and leave people just to die. It was extraordinarily wicked. And Hezekiah, the king of Israel, was not a good man and didn't trust in God. He sought all sorts of political alliances and ignored the God of the universe. But finally, he stopped relying on Egypt and turned to cry out to the Lord God in prayer. Now, do you remember if you look back um, at Psalm 74 that we were learning just a couple of weeks ago that God warned the proud of the earth not to boast, sorry, Psalm 75, verses 4 to 5, not to boast, or he would humble them. Psalm 75, to the arrogant I say, boast no more. To the wicked, do not lift up your horns. Do not lift your horns against heaven. Do not speak so defiantly. Do not arrogantly lift yourself against God. Well listen to how Sennacherib's chief officer taunts Jerusalem in Isaiah 36:18 Then the commander of the Assyrian army said Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver us Have the gods of any nation ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad Where are the gods of Sepharvaim Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Well, is God as good as his word in Psalm 75? The answer is supplied in 2 Kings 19.35. As we read, that night... The angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. That is what prompts the praise of Psalm 76. When Psalm 76 4 talks of God as more majestic than mountains rich with game, which were, imagine the hills around Jerusalem. The Israelite soldiers are peering over the battlements and as far as the eye can see, there's this enormous army, siege machines being built. It's like the hills are are covered with this terrifying swarm of predators. That's what the Israelite soldiers saw. But God saw something very, very different. The dwelling place in verse 2 is actually the word for a lion's lair. And as the Lion of Judah looked out, Verse four, he doesn't see hills swarming with predators. He sees hills swarming with game, with prey that he is going to hunt down and destroy. To him, Assyria's soldiers hold no fear. And soon they held no fear for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Verse five, the valiant, they lie plundered. They sleep their last sleep. Not one of the warriors can lift his hands. At your rebuke, God of Jacob, both horse and chariot lie still. Okay, great. Nice history lesson, if you like history. God saved his people in 701 BC by destroying a mighty army that was going to annihilate them. Wonderful. So what? How on earth does that have anything to do with our lives here in London in the 21st century? Actually, it has an awful lot to say to us. You see, Israel was never the boundary for God's activity in the world. Israel was always the bridgehead, the first step. I've just got back from uh, Revive, the the weekend for our network of churches. And it was a truly global weekend. We were thinking about God's missions in the world. We had speakers from Sierra Leone and Korea and New York uh, and Ballam. We had speakers from all over. And the churches were marked by greater diversity than ever. Different ethnic communities from London, on stage, leading, teaching, engaged and involved. Because Christianity is a global religion. It is spread all around the globe. Because the lessons that the Israelites learned were always lessons for the world. And you and I, we do not gather to learn about someone else's God when we read the Old Testament, the God of the Israelites. We learn about our God if we trust in him. And so Asaph, the psalmist, steps back and considers what lessons there are for anyone who calls on the Lord as he thinks things through. And what he teaches us now is that all people will know God as a mighty judge. Verse 7 to 12. All people on earth will know God as a mighty judge. Verse 7. It is you alone who are to be feared. Who can stand when you are angry? Do you know what the most common command in the whole Bible is? 300 times, more than 300 times, God issues used exactly the same command. Do you know what it is? Don't be afraid. Do you know why God keeps saying that? Because he's terrifying. God has to say it because every time anybody actually meets him, it's absolutely terrifying. And Psalm 76 reminds us, God has to keep saying, don't be afraid, because this is not a small, pocket-sized, comfortable, airbrushed, domesticated little God we're dealing with. This is the great judge of the universe. This is the destroyer of armies. Four times in verses 7 to 12, fear of God is held up as a right response, a natural response. When you see what God does, you ought to be pretty terrified. And We should love God because he's loved us and he's forgiven us. We should enjoy God because he is boundless pleasure. He designed you to find delight in him. We should trust God because he always keeps every single one of his promises. We should fear God because he is the judge of all the earth. Verse 7, fear him because when his anger starts to blaze against human wickedness, none can stand. Verse 8, fear him because when he makes judgments, no one can argue back. His justice is perfect. Verses 9 to 10 don't mention fear, but the idea is there. When God has acted to discipline his people, well, those who've been spared should be humble and turn from their wicked ways. Verse 11, God should be served wholeheartedly, not just by Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, but by all peoples. Verse 12, do not fear the mighty rulers of this earth, the kings, the presidents, the generals, the titans of industry, the opinion formers of the media. Don't fear them, don't serve them, serve the Lord God because he rules even them. They are terrified of him, so why on earth would we be afraid of them? Now fear of the Lord is not horror movie fear. It's not the fear of a family of a violent drunk who just never know when the key turns in the lock whether he's going to come home in a wonderful mood or in a tearing rage. It's the rightful fear, the respect of a mighty power. If you like, it's the difference between the sun and the sea. Both the sun and the sea are very powerful and can do enormous amounts of damage. But seas are unpredictable and wild. Freak waves come from nowhere. But the sun is not. The sun is consistent. And it just needs to be treated with the right respect. We saw this yesterday afternoon. We were outside in a field. And, you know, it's pretty easy. When the sun is shining, even in Britain, you put on sun cream. It's not rocket science. It's just common sense. But an awful lot of people decided there was no need. There's always, is it wrong that it's always slightly amusing when people say, oh, it's only England, you don't need to worry. People from uh, foreign places and then get sunburnt themselves. I'm sure that's uh, something awful about me, but it is, yeah, well, lesson learned. Um, God's justice is like the sun. We're tempted to, ah, whatever. God's loving, don't need to worry about him. But there's nothing unpredictable about it. His justice is blazingly pure, utterly beautiful like the sun, and absolutely consistent. It's perfect. And it's glorious. But you don't mess around with it. And so do you see in verse 10, God's wrathful judgment brings him praise. Now that is odd. Surely your wrath against mankind brings you praise. Why would you praise God for judging? Actually, we do, because we are always crying out for justice. You saw it last week. Hey, forgive me, but World Cup's on, so if I can't talk about football now, I never can. But uh, it was a penalty. It was about three penalties, and. My wife said, "You know what? I'm just going to go outside." Why? She said, "Well, I have already heard you talk about the referee, and it's getting a little boring now." To which I responded, "But it was a penalty, and and it was, and it gets, and we get so angry, and we shout out, and we get. It should have been a penalty. It's justice. We, we. You see it rather more seriously when there's injustice that goes on for year after year after year." like with the Hillsborough Inquiry. How awful for decades to have people describe your relatives as drunkards who brought tragedy on themselves when actually it was the result of terrible corruption. How awful when it's children who have no power, ripped away from their parents, of illegal immigrants who are never going to be able to fight the system. When we see injustice, we are very angry, and rightfully so. Now the last thing to notice is perhaps the most important of all, which is that in this second half, judgment is paired with salvation. Let's read through the whole thing and then focus in on verse 9. It is you alone who are to be feared, who can stand before you when you are angry. From heaven you pronounce judgment, and the land feared and was quiet, when you, God, rose up to judge, to save all the afflicted of the land. Surely your wrath against mankind brings you praise and the survivors of your wrath are restrained. Make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all the neighboring lands bring gifts to the one to be feared. He breaks the spirit of rulers. He's feared by the kings of the earth. Did you see as we went through in verse 9 that judgment is paired with salvation? When you, God, rose up to judge to save... The afflicted of the land. Now that might seem an odd pairing to us. To judge and to save. Just as as synonyms. As the same word really. But it is the pattern you see right from the start of scripture. God's promise to bring redemption. In Genesis 3.15 comes as the promise to crush the head of the serpent. Evil must be judged. For good to prevail. Sometimes for the oppressors. For the oppressed, sorry, to be saved, the oppressor needs to be punched in the face. We know that. We know that. Sometimes the only way for oppression to end is for the army to come, the police to step in. The only way for salvation to come is for sin to be judged and punished. It's a pattern that carries right through the Bible. At the flood, God's salvation of Noah's family comes through watery judgment, destroying the wickedness of the world. At the Exodus, God saves his people by crushing pharaoh and of course that pattern intensifies until we get to the cross where god saves his people sinners like you and me by bringing destructive judgment on his own head as jesus dies on the cross for us salvation comes through judgment so we praise god for his judgment and at the same time we rejoice in his salvation. Just two things as we close. Don't be a fool and don't be afraid. Don't be a fool. God will bring justice and salvation, a warning to those who oppress. Whether it's a dictator on a national level like Kim Jong-un or a bully in the workplace or a bullying husband in a family, it makes no difference. God sees all injustice. And he may be patient, but he is not indifferent. He sees And he burns with anger. There is a warning there for all of us here this morning. Do not oppress. God sees it. And do not collude in oppression. It angers God. Be careful of just smiling along at systems that crush others. God hates oppression. That's a word for all of us this morning. Let's be careful. Not to be oppressors and not to go along with oppression. There's also a word perhaps for some of us. We're not oppressing people. We're not burning down churches and beating Christians in the street either. But we are quietly opposed to God. Firmly, if not loudly, we refuse to submit to our creator and king. Don't be a fool. God's judgment will come. And on judgment day, you do not want to find yourself on the wrong side of this God. God whose justice is perfect, none of us can stand. Who here can say, I think I'll be all right on judgment day if God just gives me what I deserve? It's a terrifying thought what will happen if we do that. Don't be a fool. God will bring justice and salvation. Don't be afraid. God will bring justice and salvation. As God looks out at the brutal dictators, the intimidating gangs, the bullies and the oppressors, you need to know God doesn't see anything that scares him. When we're afraid, when we feel frustrated that the powers of injustice just seem too great for anything to change in this world, well, God doesn't look out and see predators. He looks out and sees prey, The kings of the earth are afraid of God and one day that fear will be made clear. When you pray to the God of the universe, Psalm 76 says you pray to the God who turned 185,000 Assyrian soldiers to corpses overnight. Don't be afraid. When you face oppression or when you pray for those who do, don't be afraid. When you pray for the voiceless, when you pray for the crushed, don't be afraid. This God can handle it. When you pray to this God too, remember you pray to this God who not only turned the Assyrian army into corpses, but who turned the corpse of the Lord Jesus into resurrection life. This is a God who doesn't just judge and bring down the wicked, but the one who vindicates and brings to eternal life those who trust in him. This is not a truth to be embarrassed about that God will judge. It's a glorious truth, a wonderful truth. The uh, the great innovation of this World Cup is a thing called Video Action Replay, V-A-R, it's meant to end all injustice at the World Cup. There's a team. What I love is that it's basically a bank of television screens that uh, trained referees look at to see if anything's been missed by the, the, the ref on the pitch. What I love is they still dress like referees. They're still, wearing, uh, they're still wearing their shorts. And I don't know whether they have whistles, but I'm sure they do. Uh, but they're watching this bank of, of screens. And the idea is that they will see what the ref on the pitch misses. Alas, it's proved about as useless as the ref on the pitch is most of the time. But God does see everything. He doesn't need a bank of televisions. He's God. He sees everything. And although it may take him longer than it takes the VAR refs to to radio down to the pitch that there's been an injustice. One day, the God who destroyed the Assyrian army will end human history and will call a judgment day on which... Every instance of injustice, small and large, will be dealt with. And this same God, this same God interrupted human history to die on a cross so that you and I, on that day of justice, if we trust in Jesus Christ, might not face justice but receive mercy and grace. In Jesus Christ's death on the cross, you see how passionate God's concern for justice is. He won't just ignore things and sweep them under the carpet. The only way he can save you and me is by executing justice on himself, punishing our sins. So do not think God will ignore sin at the end of time. But how wonderful, how very, very wonderful that his commitment to justice is matched by his commitment to salvation. And one day as we face judgment day, there will be no fear for those who trust in the Lord Jesus. One day we will see all oppression ended and we will see salvation enjoyed by all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, pray to him, trust him and long for that day. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that you are a God of perfect justice. We thank you that as we look at the the history of Israel, we see again and again you executing justice. We thank you that as we look to the cross, we see that even your love for your people doesn't mean you don't care about sin. That you will punish sin. You will bring justice. But that you love us so much that you're willing to suffer that justice, that punishment yourself so that we can go free. Help us, we pray, as we face injustice. Help us to have courage to stand against it. And help us to have hope as we look forward to the day when you will bring right to every wrong. Amen.